Romans 10, Romans and the 10th chapter. It's good to see each one here tonight. Welcome you in the Lord's name. Just about managed to avoid needing suspenders to <laughs> put on dress pants. It's bad time for eating this time of the year. You always just... I blame my wife. Her cooking's too good. All the, the good. I don't know if you do it the same way. I know you tend to not have turkey at Christmas. You have your turkey at Thanksgiving. Uh, the British way is to have turkey and ham at Christmas. We don't have a Thanksgiving, so we have to double up. So you double up on your meats. You double up on your potatoes too. Usually you have your mashed potatoes and your roast potatoes. Then you have all your vegetables, your cranberry uh, everything, <laughs> and then you have dessert, so it's a time of feasting for sure, and then you, you wonder why you do it afterwards, but anyway, we're glad to be here, hopefully we have our feasting times in the Word as well, and uh, very thankful for the Lord's mercy in our spiritual needs as well, and I was encouraged in coming to this chapter today. And I hope, trust I can impart some of that encouragement to you. We have, of course, our, our day of prayer on the Lord's Day. And that, that will come and go like any event. But like any event, the measure of blessing we experience is, in part at least, uh, tied to how much blessing we want. How much we want the Lord to come and meet with us. And if we just step into the Lord's Day as if it's like anything, any other day, this is true of any Lord's Day, uh, then the likelihood is we will not be as blessed as we could be. It's always an amazing thing to think of the same meeting, the same preaching, the same events that uh, it means nothing to others as life changing to someone else. And part of that is obviously sovereign, God's sovereign working. The other part of it is maybe the people were looking for it. They came hungry, asking, Lord, speak to me, give me a word. We often remark on the 3,000 converted on the day of Pentecost, and it seems huge, and it is, it's a significant number, but there were thousands upon thousands that were there, so many that were gathered, and most of them didn't respond, at least not in conversion. They didn't cry out to God. So you can have these same things, these same uh, experiences, uh, the, the, the same place and different experiences of the Lord's working. I think that comes out very uh, powerfully in Acts 17, isn't it? When Paul is on Mars Hill and there's all these different responses to the word. So we have something of that here as well. So Romans 10, we're going to take time to read from verse 1. Then we'll pray and ask the Lord to help us to call upon his name tonight for what is our midweek prayer meeting. Romans 10, verse 1. The apostle sharing under inspiration these thoughts. He says, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. 
For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness, and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. For Moses describeth the righteousness which is of the law, that the man which doeth those things shall live by them. But the righteousness which is of faith speaketh on this wise, Say not in thine heart, Who shall ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down from above, or who shall descend into the deep, that is to bring up Christ again from the dead? But what saith it? The word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth and in thy heart, that is the word of faith which we preach that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture saith, Whosoever believeth in him shall not be ashamed. For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek, but the same Lord is over all, the same Lord over all is rich, Unto all that call upon him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, How beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah saith, Lord, who hath believed our report? So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Amen. We'll end there, that well-known 17th verse, and uh, trust the Lord will bless the very reading of his word to us. Let's pray, beloved. Let's seek the Lord. Our Father, we're here tonight because of thy grace, the kindness of divine providence to bring guilty sinners into the house of God. And thou hast revealed in thy word that thy house should be a house of prayer for all nations. We ask for grace that we might maintain that desire and that we would support thy will on earth as it is in heaven. Grant, dear God, deliverance for us from any carnal thought about what it is that we are doing, what it is this Wednesday is about, even the Lord's Day, when prayer is offered, but particularly when we gather for the sole purpose, really, of calling upon God, when this is our primary objective and desire, to commune with God, to intercede before God, to bring burdens upon our hearts and present them to our God. Father, we need help. We need the same help we had when we first came to Christ. When the Spirit of God drew us, when we were unable to see the, the lights of the, the harbor and we were drawn to safety by the working of the Spirit, we were brought into the arms of the Redeemer and brought to eternal salvation all by the work of the Spirit. We think of the operation of the Spirit upon us on that occasion when we were brought to call upon the Lord, to cry out to God, to have no dependence upon our own righteousness or 
to abandon any establishing of our own righteousness as we read of here. We realize that righteousness is obtained by faith alone in Christ alone. And we cried out and it was given to us to believe and to receive by faith this righteousness. Oh, we bless thee for the Spirit that helped us to call on that occasion. And ever since, we have needed the same Spirit to call upon God. It is the need of this very hour when we gather here, when we, O oh God, have the, the obligation, yes, the privilege also, unique, wonderful knowledge we have that heaven is opened, that Christ, who ever lives to make intercession for us, opens heaven for believing sinners to come into the very presence of God. And so, Lord, we pray that that same Spirit who operates in the heart of every child of God may powerfully operate tonight. So that whatever we say about every other aspect of what goes on this evening, that we will know the Spirit has helped us to pray. Oh, God, help us then. There may be thoughts of distraction there may be other burdens and cares, and they come down to us like those fowls that tormented Abraham. Give us grace to drive them away and help us to truly lay hold upon Thee. Oh, Lord Jesus, look in pity on this waiting people. Give us the spirit of prayer and supplication. Grant Your Word will help us now. Give help in the consideration of it. Come, forgive our sins. Heal our backslidings, love us freely, and show thyself to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I wish to draw your attention tonight, beloved, to the 14th verse of Romans 10. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed, and how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard, and how shall they hear without a preacher. The last part of this text, all of it, but especially the last part of this text, holds a very key memory for me in my own Christian experience. I was a Christian probably about two and a half years because it was a harvest time. And in Northern Ireland, often the churches will host harvest services. Those services span really from September through October, all the churches having their own harvest services, sometimes Fridays, Saturdays, Lord's Days, maybe even into a Monday as well. These harvest services, usually with a different preacher invited to come, sometimes a plurality of preachers to take different services that are being put on for it. But the idea, of course, is to expression of thanksgiving. It's not a thanksgiving as you have it, but it is an expression of thanksgiving for again another harvest and God's provision in the bounty of the gospel as well as in the material needs that we all have. And I remember coming to one of those harvest services. Ivan, Reverend Ivan Foster was the preacher and I had been reading this passage and I don't know if it was that day or the previous day. I think it was even that morning. I've been reading through this passage, really struck. I had been wrestling over the need to uh, preach in the open air more, and this, this burden. And I was asking God, what am I to do with this burden? Is this a view? Is this just me? 
helped me understand, and I was reading then in Romans 10, verse 14, how shall they hear without a preacher? And I remember being greatly impressed just in my own soul by that text and feeling this sense of maybe maybe the Lord would, would have me go and uh, do more preaching and, and uh, engage in more of that. I was already doing some of it, but it was just impressing, this pressing feeling of more regular preaching on the streets. Well, I went to the service, as sometimes maybe you have done, really needing a word from God or wanting a word from God. And I said, Lord, tonight, would, you, would, you, would it please you to, to confirm to me something of what I'm feeling here? Would it you know, maybe just give me some sense of, of what you're, you're wanting for me here? And uh, went to the service and Reverend Foster preached. And I was blessed from the preaching, but there was nothing. There was, no, there was no, nothing that, that my, I had any semblance of feeling that this was the Lord saying, yes, go, whatever. That was fine, you know, and I, I sat in the pew. I think I was talking to some people uh, after the service, which, of course, uh, that's nothing, nothing changes, really, <laughs> talking to people long after the service is over. And I'm talking to folks. I don't remember who I was speaking to, but I remember one young woman in our church. She had been saved slightly before Melanie and I were brought to Christ. And uh, we had some kind of a friendship with her. And um, she, did, you know, just came up to me out of nowhere. I can't remember what she said. It was something to the effect of, um, I read this and thought of you. And she had this piece of paper folded up and she put it into my hand. And I remember opening up after she was gone, I opened up the paper. All it said was Romans 10, 14 on the piece of paper. The very text that God had pressed upon my heart that day. And I was going to that meeting that night. Don't just give me some sense of, of what you want from me here. And that she just handed it. Never happened before. Never happened since. People putting verses into my hand like that. But that's what happened. And I, again, it spurred on then. Um, my more frequent preaching in the gospel on, in the open air. So, as I say, I was reading this and I was uh, thinking of, of the memories going all the way back to that occasion and thinking about it. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? But my focus tonight is on this expression that is given in terms of what happens to those who are really being invited to believe this gospel that is the focus of the apostle's attention here. Because he says in verse 14, How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? Call on him. The only time we have this phrasing in our authorized version in any part of the Bible. We've other, of course, many expressions that are similar to it. But call on him. How then shall they call on him? This is what the Lord wants from his people, to call on him, to call on him. So we have days of prayer, we have our prayer meeting every week, we have other times and occasions for prayer, and there could be nothing that is more assured in our minds that we are doing the will of God than when we call upon God. You want to be in the center of God's will? Call upon God. You want to know that you're doing what God wants you to do? Call upon God. You, that, you, <laughs> there's perhaps nothing Nothing that could be more in the center of his will than calling upon him. So, just a few thoughts before we do this very thing of calling upon God tonight. Think firstly with me, and very simply, the impossibility of calling on God. The impossibility of calling on God. 
And two thoughts here regarding how impossible it is to, for man to call upon God. First, this is due to our fallen condition. When he is summarizing, the apostle is summarizing men being brought to a saving knowledge of Christ and knowing God, it can be put in this, these terms. How then shall they call on him? How are they going to call on him? Now, the practical outworking of this, of course, is, is they need information. They need details. They need the truth. But there are other matters at stake as well. Go back to Romans 3, just to remember these familiar verses. Romans 3, verse 9. Romans 3, 9. What then are we better than they? No, and no wise, for we have before proved, both Jews and Gentiles, that they are all under sin. That's already been stated, proven. He's laid out that uh, argument already and continues then in verse 10, as it is written. This is what the scripture tells us. The Old Testament scripture gives these statements. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Their throat is an open sepulcher. It's not prayer coming from it. It's like death that is in their throat. With their tongues, they have used deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips. This is, this is the organ from which prayer ascends, most generally we think of. We, we speak our prayer. We utter prayer. But this is, our throat is an open sepulcher. Our tongues they use for deceit, poison of asp is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace have they not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So this, this, is, this is how man is. He, is, he is fallen. And with a throat and tongues and lips and mouth that is like this, there's not prayer going up from him. Now, there may be a form of prayer looking at it just in the mechanics of it. The mechanics of their life may include prayer. Saul of Tarsus prayed. Right? We, there's no doubt that Saul of Tarsus was, a, was devout in prayer. And yet, one of the remarkable things that you find in his conversion, when Ananias is being called to go and fetch him, go to him, and he is, of course, concerned about this. I've heard many things of this man. Are you sure? You know, <laughs> this, is, this, is, this is like being asked to go and witness or confront some high and lofty key member of Al-Qaeda or some terrorist organization bent on the destruction of the church. And Ananias is being told, go, go and visit him. So, <laughs> And the way that his mind is put at ease, aside from God telling him, is, behold, he prayeth. That is not how we might describe a new convert, how we might give insight into what has happened in a person's life and the transformation that has occurred there. But that's how the Spirit of God describes it. It's how Christ utters the distinction that had happened in Saul's life. Behold, he prayeth. He prayeth. This man who had been brought up in prayer, taught to pray, had regularly given himself, no doubt, to fasting and prayer, 
time without number is now for the first time praying. His fallen condition in his unregenerate state and his Christ-denying position before God was not really seeking after God, verse 11. He was seeking after a God, a God that had been created in his own mind, a God that had been shaped by his culture, a God that he had uh, so warped and molded so that he could think himself able to establish his own righteousness before this God. He had remolded God. So he wasn't ever in those times of prayer seeking the true God of heaven. But now he is. The fallen condition makes it impossible to call upon God. This means prayer is difficult. Because you still wrestle with your fallen condition, don't you? All of us still have a battle that we are we are engaged in every moment of every day, knowing that we are, we are weak, and the good that we would do, we do not. The evil that we would, we, we just find this, this, this constant battle as expressed by the apostle himself with regard to this nature, and never is it more keenly felt than when we try to really pray. And I imagine without a show of hands that you would agree It's impossible. And thus, then, when we consider the the impossibility of calling on God, it's due to our fallen condition, but it necessitates then the gospel. And if you're still in Romans 3, you see this. The gospel becomes necessary to give us any hope. So Romans 3, verse 20. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, For by the law is the knowledge of sin, but now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe. This is what's needed. Being brought to a condition, justified before God, the imputation of a righteousness that is alien to us, worked out by Christ, received by faith alone. Remember that, boys and girls. This is it's only received by faith. You can obtain righteousness only by faith, believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is our only hope. The gospel supplies what is defective in us. Righteousness that we cannot achieve ourselves. And without going into this too far, this is why we must evangelize. This is why evangelism is key. It's why, why as soon as you lose a sense of the importance of evangelism, it's like living with all the riches of the world at your fingertips. You have all the wealth that you could ever aspire to desire. All of it is right there in your hands. And you have teeming multitudes around you who have nothing, and you're ignoring it. You have endless wealth. Like, imagine, endless wealth, endless And you can meet the need of everyone that's around you, but you refuse to do it. You you just keep it up. You store it more than you could ever use yourself. Like you you don't need all of this. No one person, a a millennium of of lives could, could not utilize all of this. And yet you or me may stand around looking at all the need around us and just ignore it. 
And we would say, this is, this is ridiculous. Who would do such a thing? And yet the church does it all the time. We have endless wealth, the riches of the gospel in Christ. But our eyes are unable to see the poverty of the men and women standing around us, and so we don't give it to them. As so we have this huge treasure store, endless supply of what men need. Now, I know, I know that there's other factors there. You say, well, if they were in physical need, material need, they would be more quick to respond if we were giving them handouts or helping them along the way. I understand all of that. Their response to the gospel does not take away our responsibility to give it. The fact that we might be dealing with people who are in poverty, who do not want the riches that we can give them, doesn't take away our responsibility to actually endeavor by the grace of God to do what we can. I hope each of us never lose sight, never lose sight of the necessity of the gospel. How is it that you came to call upon God? Why is it you're sitting here in a prayer meeting? Someone shared the gospel with you. If they hadn't, you'd be lost. You'd be looking in, looking upon such an event like this as if it was ludicrous. What are people doing, gathering like this? It makes no sense to the unregenerate, at least most of them. So the impossibility of calling on God. Secondly, the mark of salvation is calling on God. The mark of salvation is calling on God. We've kind of dealt with this already, but let's think about it a little more. Because this is how salvation begins, isn't it? It's, it's how salvation begins, calling upon God. It's not children in your baptism, and it's not in communion. And whether you've participated in these things or not, that's not where your salvation is going to come from. And no other religious endeavor or thing that you do is, is how you get to this place where you can truly call on God. And there's nothing that you can do to bring you into such a position. Your salvation begins by simply receiving, by calling upon God as the gospel is given to you. And you, you see that in verse 17. Go back to Romans 10, the text that we ended our reading at Romans 10, 17. So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. This saving faith, this life-transforming event comes about by hearing the Word and responding to it in faith. So you hear that Christ receives sinners. You hear that He saves sinners. You hear that He will save you now. And you're to respond to that truth. Believe it for yourself. But it's also how salvation continues. We call upon God. That's how salvation begins. But it's how it continues. We continue on in our life as Christians, as believers, by calling upon God. When a person stops calling upon God, they stop possessing any credible profession. Now you know this. If you were counseling anyone and they said to you, they're struggling, can you help me? And in the process of your discussion, you ask them, are you praying? And they said, no. And you start to prod a little more, and you say, well, when was the last time you prayed? You say, I don't remember. <clears throat> well, give, give a guess. Are we talking three weeks, three months, three years? And they say to you, it could be the latter. 
mean, you would, you would think, you, I, I imagine most of you would come to the point, of, are you sure you're converted? Are you sure you're saved? That, that what happened? Because if whatever you're trusting in hasn't brought you to a fellowship with God, a communion with God, then inherently we know that there's a problem. Now prayer isn't everything. We've noted that. There are many religious people who pray as the Jews, as the Apostle Paul before his conversion would have. But whatever else we have without prayer is vain. We could have all sorts of things but if we are ignoring prayer, then it's all vanity. Prayer is how we run to God, isn't it? You have expressions in the scripture which depicts us running towards God. And there are many expressions in the Psalms and other places where we see this. Then you know that what is being depicted isn't just like you're running to a I don't know, maybe even, even here, you're, you're coming to a place of public worship. Running to the temple wasn't running to God necessarily. And so it is here as well. Prayer is how we run to God. Proverbs 18.10, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous runneth into it and is safe. So it's, it's depicting the, the, all the salvific promises that we see in even the very name Jehovah. Because that's the title given in that text. The name of Jehovah. The covenant-keeping God. A God who came in promises to the patriarchs, fulfilled on the day of Moses, and the life of Moses. And he will bring deliverance. He will save his people. He will fulfill his word. That name of Jehovah is a strong tower. We run into it for our safety. How do we run into it? How do you run into it? How do you run into the name of Jehovah? It is by prayer. You can't do it without prayer. If I was to ask you, like, if someone said to you, how do I run into God's name? How do I hide in God's name? Prayer would be a key part of the response you would give. Psalm 55, 17, Evening and morning and at noon will I pray and cry aloud and he shall hear my voice. That's, that's, that's the continuity of salvation, isn't it? Evening and morning and at noon will I pray and cry aloud and he shall hear my voice. The psalmist is expecting this every day, this ongoing expression of prayer. There's a lovely text in Deuteronomy 4, verse 7, where we read there, listen to this, For what nation is there so great who hath God so nigh unto them as the Lord our God is in all things that we call upon him for. Isn't that a wonderful expression of what it is that we have and what it is that we neglect when we don't pray? What nation is there so great who hath God so nigh unto them as Jehovah our God is in all things that we call upon him for? He's like right there. He's right there to bless to enrich, to strengthen, to deliver, to comfort. He's, he's right there. 
In your trouble, child of God, he is right there. He is, he is as near as he could be. And your way to enjoy that nearness is through what? Prayer. Call upon him. Call on him. Same way you did whenever you were desperate for salvation and you were whatever age you were at that point. You had this pressing need that, that hell was opened up before you and you felt it might engulf you and you considered the thought that you might be lost forever and you wondered, how can I be delivered? How can I be saved? And you looked to Christ and you saw there one who was near, right near, ready to receive and you took him at his word. In the arms of faith, you reached out and you took his promise and you found him to be faithful and dependable. Well, this is what we continue to do, is it not? What nation is there so great who hath God so nigh unto them as the Lord our God is in all things that we call upon him for? It's right there. Whatever your burden, take that. Text right there, Deuteronomy 4 7. Just get it into your soul. Finally, the privilege of calling on God. The privilege of calling on God. There is a privilege that we have to call on God. We think of this privilege in a number of ways for our purposes tonight. First of all, the privilege of communion itself. The privilege of communion itself. Some people know what it's like to feel lonely and to sense loneliness. And, you know, a person might go through the, the, the vast majority of their lives before they ever actually sense loneliness. Because you think about it, you know, the average, the average life you're young, you're surrounded by all sorts of people, most. Like, there are obviously young people who don't uh, have this, but I was just taking the average young person, the average person here in our culture and our part of the world. They're they surrounded, surrounded by, by other young people, by adults, whatever. And they grow up, and the same is true at every stage of their life. They, they're surrounded by people. And then at some point in their 20s, they get married and they have a companion in life. And it's not that loneliness is impossible, even in, marriage, in the marriage context, but, but you, you should take that everything is assumed to be functioning in the way that it's meant to. You have this sense of, of in which you, can, you have managed to avoid a sense of loneliness, perhaps right up to the point that your spouse <coughs> passes away. And maybe for the first time in your life, you will have a loneliness that you've never had in your life before. So many of us manage to get through our lives without any sense of loneliness. Real, pressing sense of loneliness. But if we can imagine ourselves spiritually, if we can see how we stand before God, and how we are to consider ourselves before God, even in light of the judgment, where we're to have a sense of what that day might look like, even now. That the scripture gives us insight into that day, that we will all give account of ourselves before God. There's a sense of loneliness there. No one's going to advocate for you. No one's going to step in and say, I, 
let this person be fine or, you know, negotiate for you, except if you have Christ. And so in that sense, we come down to it and we realize that in a spiritual sense, we are absolutely lonely without Christ. We have no one. We can imagine we have. But if we don't have Christ, we are lonely. We have nothing. We can, again, have our lives swallowed up with people and community. But when we look at the unregenerate, they have no one if they do not have Christ. And so what do we have in the Lord Jesus Christ? We have a whole new world that opens up to us when we're saved. A whole new world. A world that didn't exist to you beforehand. A world that was, you didn't even think to ponder the glory of it. It is a world of communion with God. When you were saved, a new world opened up to you. A new world. To, you, th- you think of someone who, who goes to a new context of, of work employment or education and school. They're surrounded by lots of different people. Maybe they join another kind of a club where everyone's got similar interests and some particular hobby or whatever it might be. And you're surrounded with like-minded people. And you feel that sense of kinship. The spiritual man, the spiritual man who is made in the image of God cannot satisfy what he was built to do in terms of communion with God without Jesus Christ. It can't be satisfied. And so what I want us to realize here is that when we are converted, there is a new world that opens up. My question to you, as it was to me today, thinking about this, is are we exploring that world in the way that we should? Are we exploring that world? Think of a child, young person, maybe not so young, (laughs) who goes to Disney World for the first time, having anticipated the thought of going there for years. For every reason. Not so sure it's all that great these days. But anyway, let's let's leave the, the ethics of it aside for our purposes. You go there, right? You go there having the, all these thoughts and dreams of what's awaiting you and all this the magical world. And this 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 anticipation that you've had for months, maybe years. And given the price of it, you probably have to save for years to even go there. You think think of all of that. And think of how you want to explore every corner of that place. You want to see what it has to offer. You become enveloped in a certain smell. Those of you who have been there know what I'm talking about. There's a certain smell in the air in that place. And sounds and sights. Maybe you realize, having gone away from it, that you... You've missed huge areas of it and you want to to go back again and explore it all over again. Why is it when it comes to communion with God, there are few in the world who look at this, as I say, this new world that has opened up for the believer in that way. What is wrong with us? 
Are we not backslidden? I mean, realistically, are we not somewhat spiritually impoverished? When there are all sorts of worlds that we get excited about. But communion with God is something that, to be quite frank, is grossly neglected by most of the professing church today. There is a privilege just in the very reality that a world has opened up. And we don't explore that world. It is also a privilege God expects us to use. It's a privilege God expects us to use. Luke 18.1, Jesus says, men ought always to pray. Men ought always to pray. Why wouldn't we? <laughs> Lord, why wouldn't we pray? God, who orders all things in this world, right? We're, we believe he's sovereign. He orders everything in this world. He is the bestower of all good gifts. Every good gift cometh from above, from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. And that same God invites you to come to him with requests. He beckons you to seek him. If we don't go to him according to Calvin, he says, it were just as if one told of a treasure were to allow it to remain buried in the ground. And that's how he describes and similar to what I was saying earlier. It's like you have this whole thing. There's treasure there. Thanks. Appreciate the information. And then you'd completely neglect it. Man, I'll always to pray. If we think aright, of course we shall. Have we not received, Romans 8, 15, the spirit of adoption whereby we cry, Abba, Father? If we have received the spirit of adoption, there should be this expression of communion. Finally, a privilege of communion, a privilege God expects us to use, a privilege wise men seize upon. We do not consider a man wise who, having access to food, starves to death. In like fashion, we cannot be considered wise if we neglect the riches we are to seek from the hand of God in prayer. What the eye of faith sees in the heart of God, the mouth turns into prayer. What the eye of faith sees in the heart of God the mouth turns into prayer. What do you see by the eye of faith? You see a God who is ready and waiting with an endless, endless power, endless love, endless kindness, endless expressions of his goodness and favor toward you, the child of God. I mean, I mean, can you put limits on it? Can you? I mean, you can, in certain ways, but he's not going to invite us to seek for that which is sinful. So you can, you can certainly tailor things a little, but, but think of the expense. Think, think of what, <laughs> think of the riches available. The power that raised up Jesus from the dead operates in you. And yet we live as if we're powerless. 
sin has dominion over us, it would seem at times, when it's not meant to. Boldness to, to witness, courage, wisdom for whatever scenario we find ourselves in. It's available. Ask, James 1 tells us. Just ask for it. The promise of the Father available that we might bear a more impressive witness before a perishing world. But we don't seek for it. So when you read your Bible, when you cast your eye upon a promise of God, see a heart in God who is ready and willing to bestow it and let it then be fashioned and framed in prayer from you. Let us be wise and wiser still by learning the centrality of prayer to our joy. The centrality of prayer to our own joy. You want more joy? Do you? Make prayer more central. Honestly. Not in a, not in a way that you, you are overcome with the burden of some exercise to do. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not trying to put you into a bind of an exercise where you have to perform some expression of, of prayer for a certain length of time and a certain frequency every day or whatever. I, I'm not talking about that. But I'm just, the whole idea, the whole idea that my greatest joy will come about by fellowship where, uh, with the one who is the very source of joy, right? He is the source of joy. There is no joy outside of God. Really, I mean, he, he puts joy into the world. He's the, he's the bestower of joy and happiness, it's, but it's all found in him. And so if I want that, <laughs> let me go to the source and one of the ways we really apprehend what we have is through prayer. Otherwise, the scripture becomes a dead letter. It bounces off our hardened hearts as if we're completely unable to receive it. We become callous, followed. It's the word the Bible uses. So, what needs do you have? What needs do you have? Think of the Lord's Day, especially tonight too. Don't, don't ignore tonight, but the Lord's Day as well. What, what, what burdens? And does, does God want to, to answer? Does he? It would seem to me from Scripture he does. It would seem that his emphasis on prayer in his word, where he's always making reference to prayer, and he's encouraging us to pray, and our Lord Jesus takes the Old Testament and then he, he ramps it up, like he ramps it up. Whatsoever you ask in my name, that will I do. I mean, he, he, does he not ramp it up? When you read the Old Testament, you see how willing God is to hear and answer prayer. Jesus comes and speaks to his disciples, and you read John 14 and 15 and 16, you see, has he not accelerated? Has he not elevated? Has he not brought to an apex this understanding of the child of God, how willing God is to hear the simple who cry in Jesus' name and to answer If we were to say there's a way in which God could more express his willingness to answer prayer, I'd like to know how that should be expressed. Because I couldn't, I could not, I can't think of a way to outdo the language of the Lord Jesus in those chapters. Go and read them again. Go and, go and read them and see what he is saying to his people. I'm right here ready 
I'm going to go away, I'll send a comforter, but I am going to bestow whatsoever you ask. In my name, that will I do. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. It could not be more clear. So what do we do? Well, when we came at first to cry out to God to save us, we believed him, didn't we? We believed, as vile sinners that we are, we believed that call upon him and he will save. Well, continue as you began. Call upon him. He will answer. We're going to sing.